So, in uh, last week's uh, entertaining opening session, studying the life of the Old Testament prophet Elijah, we were introduced to royalty, albeit very unsavory royalty in the form of Ahab, the king of Israel, and his rather obnoxious wife, Queen Jezebel. And this morning we're going to journey then to the opposite end of the social spectrum, for we'll be visiting an economically destitute widow. In stark contrast to the offensive royal couple, this widow emerges as an example to be followed by those who wish to worship and serve the true and living God. Indeed, our widow even makes it into the pages of the New Testament, being favorably alluded to by none other than Jesus himself. Um, that reference is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 25 to 26. The world may have considered the widow as being of really no consequence, but not so the Lord. So our text for this morning is found in 1 Kings chapter 17, 1 Kings 17, and we're going to be looking at the section then, um, verses 7 through to 24. Uh, but as with last week, I'm actually going to divide up the reading into two um, sections, two segments. Um, we're going to then begin by looking at the verses 7 to 16. Uh, so 1 Kings 17, verses 7 to 16. But for context, remember that Elijah, the prophet Elijah, has delivered his message of judgment to Ahab. That is, that there is, there is going to be no rain in Israel for the next few years. And then, at the Lord's command, Elijah has scarpered to the Kareth Ravine, found on the easternmost edge of Israel, where he has been sustained by water from the brook and meat twice delivered by the ravens. And that is then where we pick up the story. So, verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home 
and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So this first section I've entitled The Widow's Provisions. The brook, which had been the source of H2O for Elijah, has now dried up. A victim of the drought that hit Israel in response to Elijah's prayer for judgment to fall upon the land. Due to Ahab and Jezebel's leading of the people into um, intensified idolatry. The word of the Lord then comes to Elijah and he's told to go on what was actually a roughly 100 mile journey from the Kerith ravine to Zarephath in Sidon where he is to reside. Now what is so remarkable about this destination is that Sidon was the kingdom of Jezebel's father and it was considered as the very epicenter of Baalism. Remember that under Jezebel's influence uh, Ahab had really introduced uh, full-on Baal worship into Israel. A.W. Pink describes um, Zarephath as or Sidon as the headquarters of Baal worship and Dale Ralph Davis as Baalism in Gentile land. And remember that at this time, Elijah is number one on Israel's most wanted list. And F. Baal, that is Jezebel's father, would no doubt love to make his daughter's day by having Elijah apprehended and deported to face the injustice of Ahab's court. But Yahweh has his plan. Elijah will find provisions and lodgings from this poor Gentile widow. She isn't just any Gentile widow. She is a poor Gentile widow who appears to be on the point of starvation and close to death. When Elijah meets her, she is out scavenging for sticks. Yet Elijah requests that she fetch him a little water in a jar 
And while she's at it, a piece of bread. The widow swears by the life of Elijah's God, Yahweh, that she has no bread. All she has is a modicum of flour in a jar and oil in a jug. That's why she's out gathering sticks. She intends making really a final meal for her son and herself. Their last supper before they become titty bread. Undeterred, Elijah assures her that all will be well. The jar of flour will not be exhausted, nor the jar of oil run out, until the day when the drought comes to its divinely appointed end. Elijah certainly puts this widow to the test, for he demands that before she cooks the meal for herself and her son, she should first make a small cake of bread for him and deliver it ASAP. And the widow does just as Elijah has commanded. And sure enough, the jar of flour and the jug of oil miraculously are constantly replenished. When I read that um, account, when I was studying this, I happened to be at the same time, or roughly the same time, doing quite a bit of reading on the intertestamental period, which is a fascinating period um, in the history of Israel, the so-called 400 silent years between the Old and New Testaments. And I was reading about um, what has what was really become the background to the Jewish feast of Hanukkah. What happened here was that at the occasion of the rededication of the Jerusalem temple in 164 BC, the temple, which had been just a few years earlier, had been horribly defiled by the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, it was being, the temple now was being rededicated. But Jewish tradition says that there was not enough oil to fuel the menorah or the lampstand, which was to burn continuously in the temple each night. But a mere single day's supply of oil, miraculously burned for eight full days until a fresh supply of oil became available. Hence the eight-day festival of Hanukkah celebrated by the Jewish community ever since. Now, we cannot be absolutely 100% sure of the, you know, the, the, the veracity of that account. But we can be certain that in the widow of Zarephath's case, the jar and the jug just kept on delivering flour and oil. Such was the Lord's miraculous provision for his servant Elijah and for the woman and her son. So let's continue on 
with our reading. Uh, So we pick up again at verse 17. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And hopefully I'll not lose my place this time. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So we had left off with things looking up for the widow of Zarephath, with a daily supply of oil and flour, but they take a turn, a devastating turn at that, for the widow's son becomes ill and eventually succumbs to death. Apart from the obvious grief from and shock of losing her child, we must remember that at this time in history, for a widow to lose her son would spell absolute disaster. There would be no widow's alliance to claim from the Sidonian state. The widow would feel that her life was over. The widow is perplexed. And in her anguish, she verbally strikes out at Elijah. What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? It's as if Elijah's God has played a cruel trick upon her, enabling her to live only so that he can then visit punishment upon her by taking away her child. No doubt she would have felt it would have been better to have just starved to death without ever having encountered this man, this prophet. But of course, this is not where the story terminates. Elijah is obviously heartbroken by the boy's death and he too seems perplexed by what has happened. And so he takes the boy from his bereft mother, carries him to the upper room, lays the boy out on his bed, 
and three times stretches himself out on the boy, beseeching the Lord to hear his cry that his life return to him. Now, this is no like magical incantation or, or strange ritual. This is Elijah moved with compassion, pouring out his heart to Yahweh on behalf of this distraught widow and in a very visual way, pleading that the boy's lifeless body might become like his own living body. And the story does have a happy ending. And don't we all love happy endings? For the Lord hears Elijah's cry and miraculously the boy's life returns to him. Whereupon the prophet carries the boy downstairs and presents him alive to his mother. Now this is the first time in biblical history that such a resurrection had occurred. So there is no way that the widow could have foreseen this marvelous outcome. Certainly the uniqueness of the event made its mark upon her. For henceforth, she is absolutely convinced that Elijah was God's servant and spokesman. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Note, not your truth, but the truth. That's for the benefit of any postmodernists who are watching. What then about our lessons? Our lessons. Well, as with last week, uh, I'm confining myself to just two. Although, unlike last week, I got accosted on the way out last week by somebody who was very disappointed that I had no subdivisions. So I'm going to make up for it this morning on point two. But point number one, which doesn't have a subdivision, <coughs> Yahweh, Yahweh is the God of the miraculous. Yahweh is the God of the miraculous. Both parts of this morning's text Reveal God to be a God of the miraculous. It was a miracle that the jar of flour and the jug of oil were replenished day by day. And it was most definitely a miracle that the widow's son was restored to life. Of course, if God created this world, then God is at liberty to intervene from time to time to perform a miracle, to suspend the normal laws of nature which he has put in place to do something extraordinary. But it is important that we do adopt a balanced view on biblical miracles. And really there are two extremes to be avoided. One is to deny that miracles ever occur. This is the standpoint of most liberal biblical scholars. They will always look to natural phenomena to explain away any purported divine miracle. For example, there are those 
biblical commentators who say that the jar of flour and the jug of oil didn't run out because the widow's neighbors neighbors gathered together to support her, giving of their own provisions. Just like in the New Testament, you know, Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000. A lot of liberal scholars reject the miraculous here and say that what happened was that lots of people had brought a packed lunch that day, not just one boy. Lots of people, and they all shared. Although how they got 12 extra baskets of bread, I'm not quite sure. But there's absolutely nothing in our text to justify such a sort of a a naturalistic explanation about this business of the neighbors sharing. The best that can be said for this proposition is to point to a similar situation recorded in 2 Kings chapter 4. There we read of, again, a recently bereaved widow who appeals to Elijah's successor, Elisha, for help given that her creditors are threatening to take away her two sons as slaves. In this case, Elisha does tell the widow to ask her neighbors for help. However, even then, her neighbors only supply empty jars, jars which keep on getting miraculously refilled with oil. So a merely human explanation won't cut it. And when it comes to the greater miracle of the widow's son being returned to life, predictably, the liberal critics suggest that the boy hadn't really died and all that happened was that he passed out and then revived. But that is not what our text says. Of course, aren't we well used to such skepticism? The Old Testament accounts of creation or the flood or the exodus or the parting of the Red Sea all meet with some attempted naturalistic explanation or alternatively, they're written off as mere fable or myth. Likewise, the New Testament account of Jesus' resurrection is explained even the, you know, preposterously as Jesus having merely swooned on the cross and subsequently reviving. Or, maybe more common today, that he rose from the grave in a metaphorical sense rather than in a literal bodily manner. As Bible-affirming evangelicals, we totally repudiate these lame attempts at doing away with the supernatural or the miraculous. Our confidence is in what the scriptures clearly teach and proclaim. But the opposite extreme is to expect miracles to occur everywhere. An avalanche of miracles of healing and deliverance. And there really are two points to be made here. First of all, a miracle is by definition exceptional. 
It is an exception to the normal pattern of things. A miracle is the result of God's decision to directly intervene in this world to do something out of the ordinary. If miracles were commonplace, then they'd no longer be miracles. So don't expect a miraculous deliverance every time someone is gravely ill, for example. And secondly, the history of biblical miracles tends to be concentrated into defined time periods, such as the creation, the exodus, the entry into the promised land, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, the earthly ministry of Jesus, and the formative years of the New Testament church. These are landmark periods associated with fresh revelation or a new work of God. But there are long periods where miracles seem to be absent or very restricted in number. So never say that God cannot do a miracle today or that he won't perform a miracle today. But don't expect miracles left, right and center as the norm. Even today, miracles tend to occur more in contexts where the gospel is reaching new groups of people, often where the scriptures are unavailable or where persecution of the church is rife. I don't think it is fair to say that the reason why we don't see so many miracles in this part of the world is because we simply lack faith. No, God rules this world through divine providence. And that normally means that the laws of nature that he instituted, that he put in place, are observed. And lesson number two, the fivefold ingredients of faith. So it's a fivefold subdivision. Between the actions of the widow and of the prophet Elijah, we are provided here with really a compendium of the elements of saving faith. First of all, we have obedience. We have to marvel at this Gentile widow who is prepared to do what is asked of her by this strange-looking man, Elijah, who remember last week we said must have looked like Reuben, who has entered her life out of nowhere. Verse 15 says, She went away and did as Elijah had told her. Remember, this guy's just appeared out of the blue. This bereft widow is at the point of starving to death. And yet, Elijah tells her to prioritize a meal for himself over a meal for the widow or her son. And yet, she obeyed. Yes, she was desperate, but nonetheless, she did what we would not normally be willing to do. It was an act of pure obedience. And if anyone is to experience God's salvation, they too 
must be willing to do what God says. They must be willing to take him at his word. There is no salvation without a willingness to obey. Not doing good works to achieve merit with God, but listening to and doing what he says we must do to become right with him. So, obedience. Secondly, testing. Just when things seem to have turned out well, the widow is faced with a renewed crisis. And it can't be a bigger crisis than the death of her boy. And it clearly rattled her. She is befuddled. She's perplexed by it all. And she lashes out at Elijah. Nonetheless, she's willing that Elijah remove her son, taking him upstairs, whereupon he's miraculously restored to life. And let it be said that any journey of true faith will not be without its testings. There will be times when we are devastated. There will be times when we become exasperated. When we just don't understand why did God allow that thing to happen? But as James would remind us, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. It's in the hard times that our faith is refined. Fittingly, Zarephath actually means refining or smelting place. And both Elijah and the widow's faith in God would be refined by this momentous and severe trial. Thirdly, belief. Despite her Gentile background, this widow clearly knew of Elijah's God and more so knew that he was the living God, verse 12. And she clearly believed that Elijah was a man of God, verse 18. And Elijah certainly believed that God could return the widow's son to life lest he would not have engaged in this unusual act of thrice lying upon the boy and crying to the Lord for his life to be restored. Salvation is always dependent upon belief. Belief in God, belief in his son, belief in the sufficiency of Christ's atoning sacrifice that we have been remembering just recently. And belief that Jesus has been raised from the dead for our justification. Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Fourthly, prayer. We cannot but be moved by the earnestness and intensity of Elijah's prayer. Elijah cried out to the Lord that the boy would be brought back from the dead. And the Lord heard and answered his servant's cry. Prayer is essential to saving faith. The initial prayer whereby we cry out in desperation as a self-confessed sinner, begging God, 
to forgive our sin and to receive us into his family. And then ongoing prayer as we live out our earthly lives until the day that Christ returns or we are called home to glory. And finally, assurance. Our passage draws towards its end with the lovely words from the widow, now I know, now I know. The widow is convinced that Elijah is the Lord's servant. And note that unlike in verse 12, she no longer talks of your God. It is now the Lord. Elijah's God, Israel's true God, Yahweh, is now her God. She has, been, she has just seen what he can do by bringing her son back to life. She was now convinced of the identity of the true God and thus of her own salvation. And we have this same assurance. We know that God has raised his son, Jesus, back from the dead to secure our salvation. Of our forgiveness, there can be absolutely no doubt, no question if we are trusting in the living God and in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.